Hi, I'm Lisa Kennedy and you're listening to The Bra and the Brave. This podcast celebrates the creative and the courageous. I am fascinated by those who are talented, forward-thinking and inquisitive. Sharing their stories, wisdom and everything in between, The Bra and the Brave is about people and their passions. So on to today's episode. I've been listening to your stuff on um, Spotify because obviously I was like following you already. Yeah. Um, before we started chatting, but um, but I love it. I totally love. Oh, and I love the photo. We need to get into like the, the picture as well that you've used. From... Been swag since ninety one ever. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I should probably formally say that I'm talking to Matthew Hickman, aka Brown Bear. Is that fair yeah. to say? Yeah, I guess some sometimes. Uh... I'll, I'll I'll really go and speak in the way that insinuates that I am brown bear, but then wait for someone to refer to me as brown bear and say it's the band called brown bear. But I'm just doing it to mess with people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad you cleared that up because I was like, don't want to offend you, but like calling you. <laughs> totally. Nah, I don't know. And I should be calling you brown bear or vice versa. And then I was like, but is that the band's name? Like, so where did the name come from then, brown bear? I guess I guess when I first started it, I was I was like doing things under my own name, and then I, I got a band behind it, and I, I just felt like, see when you call a band like the Matt Hickman band or the Matt Hickman trio or something, that's just lame, isn't it? It's like, come on, you can do better. <laughs> and then I was in a band after that called Brown Bear and the Bandits. It was good, you know, it was a good laugh, but it, it didn't really work out. It was friends, you know, when when you start bands with friends, it's not, you all have a different thing, and then it. We started to pick up a bit of traction and then we decided to call it a day. So then it, I just went, I'm going to keep the brown bear thing, we're going to do that. And uh, that's how it came about. The, the reason we were called brown bear and the bandits is like, I've, got, I've, I've told a million stories, so it just depends which one you want me to tell. I, I, the, the true story is, I honestly don't even know why we said that. I think it was just alliteration, we thought. I love alliteration. You're on the, the brave podcast, so. Exactly. So this is the place for it. Yes. <laughs> but then the, the brown bear thing stuck, you know, and uh we love the name and obviously we use it as like one word which is weird and then there's that thing in the logo under that's like brown bear but somewhere along the line the logo got lost the original file of it and it actually used to be very clear that it was like it wasn't a u and an e it was the phonetic letter so you knew how we were pronouncing it like kind of brown bear but whoever redid the logo thought it was a u and an e and they just put brown bear and then we thought we just left it and then it's kind of good because it's the only thing that comes up if you put hashtag brown bear is our stuff <gasps> is brown... no, that is cool. yeah but see brown bears dead common right so you'd get pictures of actual brown bears and stuff so i guess it's worked out and to be um... fair when i did google you i did just put in brown bear at first and i thought that was schoolboy era lisa yeah <laughs> obviously i was a person i was like brown bear band but it's funny because like when i think of jamiroquai Mm-hmm. the band but I don't think of Jamiroquai the band I think of like JK so it's a bit like you like Brown Bear is the name of the band but people probably instantly think of you because yeah. you're like the front yeah, band totally. it's, it's funny because to me uh, we've had like different I mean I, everyone that's a member of the band like I, I, I hold with the highest regard but like pe- people come and go things change uh, and I love the current setup we have but for me, Brown Bear is like me and Sam, uh, who's the drummer, who's been there since day one. And like everyone always talks about us having quite a distinct sound, but it's part of that is Sam's drumming. When we made the first record, the only people that did pre-production were me and Sam. And right. we, we, we were in the room together just all the time, just making sure everything's locked. And, and we're, we're at a stage now that if we're doing a sound check, I can tell by the way Sam plays what he has or doesn't have in his monitor. I'll just stop and be like, Sam, you need to take that in your monitor. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I do. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, so like to me, brown bears like me and Sam. That's the funny thing. Like we've been talking about me as brown bear, but I think like I can't really imagine brown bear being the same without Sam. When I was in Brown Bear and the Bandits, he was in a band called Miniature Dinosaurs. I can't remember exactly how we met, but we, we felt like we were very similar in the sense that we were trying really hard to show that we were a good band, but because we weren't from Glasgow, I was from Ayrshire, they were from Stirling, we felt like outsiders and we felt that people looked at us as a bit gimmicky and we weren't very cool and they disregarded us. Now, as bands, we were very different, but we had the same ethos. So we ended up doing a joint tour together. It was really good fun. We became friends and then me and Sam ended up becoming like pals like, and hanging out and we were playing FIFA together a lot online. And mm-hmm. when that band split up, I was talking to him and he was like, you know, I'd always have loved to play with the band. And I was like, why, why don't you come and do the Brown Bear thing? And he did. And that's it. It was just ever since everything we do, you know, it's always been me and Sam. It's lovely how you just make those connections with people and then down the line it just fits, it just makes sense. Totally. I, th- I think as well, to date, he's the only person who's ever done an interview with for Brown Bear with me. I think every, every interview, everything we've ever done for press has been me. He did it once, he said he'd never do it again, but I, 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 was, like, <laughs> I was so buzzing, I was like, Sam, coming to the interview, it would be great having someone else, and then it was actually kind of awkward because he was dead shy, and he didn't really say much. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned like um, that you are from Ayrshire. Yeah. And we were talking about that before we started recording, because of course we have a mutual friend, of course we do, because I think like Scotland is just like, world, such a place like it was guaranteed that we were going to know somebody because I feel like the world of music and the arts in general, there's always going to be totally. somebody that you know, and which is lovely. And that's what I'm, you know, that's why I've been able to continue the podcast because it's just making all these connections. Yeah. But um, but being removed from like you were saying, like from that scene in Glasgow and feeling like you were maybe a bit of an outsider. What was like growing up in in Largs and Ayrshire like? Was music like your first kind of go to? Well, Largs is a kind of typical Ayrshire town in it you know everyone everyone knows everyone and everyone kind of works uh to get by and works for the weekend and and the, it's like sports like you know like we've got Inverclyde up there but football was a big thing so I was talking to you about this earlier funny enough like when we we're off air I was saying like because you you're, you're a dancer I was saying I was saying my mum was desperate for me to become a dancer and I was we she just thought it'd be like a great life and I don't know why in the 90s in the west coast of Scotland she thought that would be the case but she did <laughs> and uh you know, I, I wanted to be like everyone. I wanted to play football. I wanted to be good at it. And I just wasn't. I sucked. Like, really, really bad. And I, I guess we moved into a street when I was maybe eight or nine. And, like, the boy that lived at the end of the road, his big brother played guitar. And I just thought it was cool. You know, like, I'd had... My, the thing is, my dad played guitar, but I didn't... When you're younger, like, you don't think anything about your parents is cool, particularly, right? So I never really thought much of it. And then you see other people then, you know, I was like, Dad, I, I want to learn to play guitar. And they bought me one. And... See, after that point, I just honestly became obsessed. Like every day after school, like I wouldn't do homework. I would just sit for hours, like playing. I just wanted to get better because when when we started playing as well, my friends started playing and they were naturally just really good. Like they could just play things. And I, again, I couldn't, I, I wasn't good at it. But I, 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 I loved music my whole life. You know what I mean? I, from, from the minute I was born, I think, I was obsessed with songs and uh, my first love was like Michael Jackson and yeah and that's why I wanted to dance so like funnily enough I wanted to be yeah. like him as a dancer more than a musician oh I'm like we were such big MJ fans like I, I'm looking at like vinyls right now I've still got like Thriller and Bad on yeah, vinyl same same and do you know one of the most gutting things that happened to you I actually was in a, a record I was dating a girl at the time and I was in a record shop in York and they had an original Dangerous vinyl which they're quite hard to find in good quality 
and I was like, I've got a choice here. Like, I get dangerous for me, or I buy a record for the the girl because I'm trying to impress her, or whatever. Right. And and she wanted a Bob Dylan record, and and then I bought it, and then she she actually like like said she didn't want to go out with me when we were in New York, which is awkward. No. And, really? uh, and did she know that you wanted that? record uh, I, I don't know man but she, she she didn't even take the bob dylan record home sorry i'm judging her <laughs> so i'm stuck with this bob dylan record i didn't even want <laughs> but anyway i just thought it was just that loving like when we we're younger like we still saw jackson five stuff I, I, I suppose probably because of the christmas song right that's probably why as a kid you hear yes the jackson fives first maybe like i don't know mm. and um and, and then we had all the, the records in the house, and then I just saw him dance, and I just, I just, I, 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 I would say, I would say to my mum all the time, could, could you just change my name to Michael? It's not that far away from Matthew. I mean, I was like five saying this, oh my just God. before school. Like, come on, mum, it's no. not that far away from Matthew. Just do it before I go to school as well, so people really know me as, as Michael. That's mental. And um, was that the kind of music like your parents were listening to? Were they listening to? Michael Jackson, or was there any other kind of influences in the house? Um, yeah, I know. Like my my dad was music crazy, so he he would listen to uh, rock was his first love. So like Queen and Led Zeppelin was big in the house when I was young, which I appreciate a lot now. You know, at the time though, I wanted to listen to other stuff, but my dad would find it so frustrating. He'd be like, "That's not real music. That's like they didn't even write that song. Like you don't understand what real music is. Like listen to you two and all this." And my mum was right into. Um, our hippie stuff like Johnny Mitchell and all that and yes that's that's my uh, mum's go-to definitely totally. so my mum was a uh, like she's uh, African our uh, African heritage and so like mm-hmm. she had like loads of other music in the house like Lady uh, and all that kind of stuff like lo- loads of like uh, African music and, and Afro and soul and mm. so I, from a young age I was just exposed to a lot a lot of sounds and a lot and and that to me was what every household had that's the funny thing when you grow up like you just assume everyone's heard like even Graceland, you know, Paul Simon, you just assume everybody's heard that record. So true. I remember my friend going on holiday, right? And she was like, there was this song, they were playing it around the pool. Oh my God, it's like the best song I've ever heard. Like, you'll totally not know it. And I was like, what are you talking about? And it was uh, Tracy Chapman. Yeah, uh, like Fast Car. Fast Car. And she was like, oh, it went like uh, driving in my car, driving. And I was like, is, is it this song and I put the album on and like that was just something that like, we were listening to all the time like you know my mum was mm-hmm. a big Tracy Chapman fan and she was oh my god that's the song and she had no idea who sang it like she'd never heard it in life but she was like it's amazing like that song's been out for like years I've been listening to that like and we were only kids but it was just like totally. she thought this was the best thing she'd ever heard and I'm like aye it's Tracy Chapman <laughs> totally and my, and my dad had this like appreciation for music like he, he couldn't just you, you know he, he came from that pure like line of like loving Eric Clapton and all that but he, he would never just go I love Eric Clapton he had to he had to have known where that came from so like in my house we had like Muddy Waters BB King everyone like yeah. the, like the proper blues originals like Robert Johnson so he, he was always really big on understanding where music came from and he, even as I went through university the amount of times that I come across people and you say like oh we're doing music what you're into and they just go with the Beatles I'm like is that really like what you define music as the Beatles man you need to like listen to something else and they go, they just go like, nah, the Beatles are the greatest thing ever. I'm like, man, e- even if that is true, like you have to understand where they got that from, oh, and it, <laughs> they didn't just magic out of thin air. Like you can't, you can't just say the Beatles are the greatest band ever. Like, but that is what most commonly people will say to you is like, I love the Beatles. I'm like, and I just think, oh, boring. Like we get it. Who, who, who do you actually love? I appreciate it for what it is, but it's not the kind of music that I would necessarily be mm-hmm. my go to. Like, I, I feel like we had quite similar 
upbringings and the sense of music as well like you know it was mm-hmm. I was listening to so many eclectic styles because like my parents shared the same kind of love for for certain artists you know like but totally. my mum had her music so like when my dad would go to the, the pub on a Sunday night my mum would put her stuff on we were listening to Michael Bolton who by the way I love, yeah. I love Michael Bolton <laughs> and uh, Tracy Chapman and Joni Mitchell and um, Loudon Wainwright so I just that eclectic mix and you don't realise at the time that you're taking it all in obviously and then I was listening to Michael Jackson and Five Star and it's all, it all doing something yep it's all setting in isn't it I, I think that's been an amazing thing for me as a as a writer you know like my dad had this thing like he would he would love a family holiday when we were going to drive and he would just go and buy the albums. I used to be so confused. I'm like, why do you just buy albums if you don't know them? And he's like, well, how are you going to know if you like something if you don't listen to it? And I mean, like, even though he was a rock guy, he would go and buy, like, say the latest album and the, you know, in the back then as well, like, it was very, it wasn't the same as the internet days. So you'd have, like, albums that were pushed on you through adverts, like Keen or whatever the latest Brit school thing was. Yeah. And he would buy them all and he'd be like, ah, you know, like, he'd be sitting and going, like, Okay, maybe I don't like the band, but like you, you can't say that's a bad song. That's a well-written song, or that you know. And it made me start to think about how songs were shaped and like how they were written for people and by people, and who they were written for and who played them what, and uh-huh. and looking at vinyl sleeves and and who produced it, and then and then that with Michael Jackson became how I was fascinated with Quincy Jones, and that led me mm. closer to. But and then, and then you get obsessed with other things, right? So then at the same time, I'm obsessed with like, I'm starting to be obsessed with like Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder. And then mm-hmm. you get to Motown and then you realise that Quincy Jones's influence coming from Ray Charles and then it all ties together. And you're like, my, like it's like a, a total lineage and yeah, education yeah. of music. Well, I was, that's what I was thinking. Like, what an education. Like, I'm just thinking of people at home with kids just now, like trying to homeschool. And I'm like, have a conversation, mm-hmm. like listen listen to music together and like talk about it like what do you like and what do you think about that and do you know that was produced by the same person and you were being schooled totally. in music at home and I, I'm, I'm glad it's stuck like I feel like I feel at some point it's got to come back around because we, I, when I was younger the the kind of gimmick for bands was obviously that kind of pop punk skatey thing right, uh-huh. but if, if you took away the gimmick there were still really good songs happening there like Fall Out Boy and all that mm. Well, it was a bit later, but I could I, I still remember them. I suppose for me, it's probably more like Blink-182 and stuff. But there were some really great songs there. And, and our generation of like alternative music listeners had some... We're basically being taught pop songs through a rock, a fake rock genre, right? Mm. <clears throat> Whereas now I listen to music and I just think, like, songwriting's a lost art. See, when you listen to the way that they put songs together and that, it's like, you, you can tell it's been like spliced together by five different people in five different rooms and it's all kind of manufactured to be you, you know it's funny because like back in the day like my, like my dad probably thought like what what the or whatever like that's not real music but like now you look back at the the writers behind those people and you go like okay maybe like it was pop music but the songs are brilliant i don't think in 30 years we're going to look back at this 2019 2020 crop of songs and say well man they were amazing i think we'll look back and not remember who they were that's really sad. I, I was talking to someone the other day who who does a lot of writing for people, and I was saying uh, I was doing some writing over Zoom <laughs> for other artists, and it, he he's like a kind of producer type, and he was like, "How are you doing that?" And I was like, "What do you mean?" He's like, "Well, you know, like if you can't be in the studio and you can't put songs together like this, how are you writing?" And I was like, "Mate, I just sit down with my guitar or my piano and I write the song." I was always told, if you can't sit at a party with your acoustic guitar or on a piano and sing that song to the room and they say that's a tune, then it's not a tune and you should forget it. Because it's not a good enough song, 
And I wish more people would live like that because you hear songs now and I think, could you imagine hearing that without all the production? It wouldn't, you'd, yeah. you'd laugh probably at half the songs. That's if someone, true, you, you know, and I think that hits the industry. Like they, they can pretend it doesn't, but man, like record sales and CD sales, I, I don't believe that the internet was the sole factor. I, I do believe that the standard of writing has dropped to a point where it's hard to sell garbage, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So what, like, what was the impetus for you to then? Because you've got this amazing education of music. Like, you're totally immersed in it. You're, you know, obsessed with the guitar. But like, what was the point where you were like, oh, maybe I'll write a song? We decided to start a like high school band in like first or second year. Yes, done that. And uh, <laughs> I wanted to play lead guitar. Uh, obviously, everyone did, but I couldn't because I sucked. I was really bad. <laughs> and uh, I was like, right, well, I'm going to try and write a song. Uh, but I started like everyone did, you know, being stupid, like rhyming, saying silly things because you're too embarrassed to say something real or you don't really have anything real to say maybe is more important because you're young. <laughs> so I'm writing these rhymes and I'm making people laugh. But I realised that I could get an emotion out of people through a song. That it wasn't the emotion I would intend, which is maybe like, like sadness or happiness mm. or understanding, but I was making people laugh with words. Yeah, you made them feel something. Yeah. and So I was like, okay. And then they were, they were like, right, I think because you're writing these things you should sing and I couldn't sing and then I was like let's draw straws and I drew the short straw like, nah, you're the singer in the band actual straws yeah actual straws it's... <laughs> which is an rarity these days <laughs> yeah totally people who listen to us are like either outraged by the use of plastic straws or don't know what a straw is <laughs> I'm not judging you at all it was a time <laughs> yeah back when plastic straws were acceptable yeah, and, and uh, I just kind of, from there, I just kept writing and I would sit in the class and I loved writing like wee stories and wee rhymes. And then we were in the band, obviously, was like, it wasn't like anything like now. It was like, we thought we were Nirvana or something. Did it have a name? Do you remember the name? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Go on. We, we were called DIY Suicide. Because we thought we were like really cool. It was really was not <laughs> cool at all. It, nothing about it was cool. Uh, and then I think we changed it to be called Redefined. Because we were trying to redefine ourselves, and that was the best we could come nice up with. One. Yeah, see where you were going with that. <laughs> but you know, but, but but I learned so much about being in a band and egos and writing and mm. just trying to learn to perform and and the chance to go on stage is so rare, right? Because it's all it's probably like once a year they let yeah. you have like a battle of the bands at the school mm. or something, and your your knees trembling and all that. But then the the buzz of doing it and yeah, then I just started actually writing after that and. I actually sitting with an acoustic and writing songs and I kept them to myself because I thought they were too emotional. That's the funny thing. I had all these songs that I would never show people because I thought, like, that's all emotional. The songs aren't, we're supposed to be cool, man. We're supposed to be rock and roll. <laughs> and then you find that it's the emotional ones that click with people. The ones that yeah, it's like, people relate to. It means something to mm. people. Totally. I think that, like, wearing your heart in your sleeve thing is super scary. I guess yeah. if you're writing about somebody else as well and, like, what would they be able to identify themselves in the song? <laughs> I think, though, even if you were to hear a story and write about it, something in that experience has drawn you to it, so you, there must be a bit of yourself in it, right, to mm. really do it justice. And There's a kind of writing style for bands where it's like quite like, I suppose like early Arctic Monkeys, you know, it's like quite aware of their surroundings and it's quite like, this is where we're from. And yeah. like, you know, like that, that style of writing, I, I admire because I don't think I'd ever be able to do it. Like, that's not within my skills as a writer and I think that's an amazing thing and and, and it seems to be like an, a, a trend in Sheffield you know she, the Sheffield bands have this amazing awareness of of their area and you know Reverend and the Makers mm. as well and obviously like Pulp like they have this great 
uh, like in touch with like their people and their mm. surroundings and I think that's an amazing an amazing thing so it's funny as a writer when you've got a style you might be good at like you're, you're always going to envy a style you can't do and that's like one for me I would just if I tried to do their style of writing I think it would just be terrible so what would you say is your style how would you sum up your your sound and your style of writing I would say it's quite uh honest like life stories like a lot of it is like reflective of my life or the people directly around me and 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 that does bring its own difficulties with doing the songs because you get attached because there's a lot of emotion behind it or you know sometimes when there's like songs that are from a a worse place or a dark place like that can be hard to come and give that energy every night right because when you're on a tour you're you're feeling that emotion every day and it's draining but I I would say as I've got older I've been I've, I've been a lot better for taking a step back and being like able to say things and be more articulate with my songs and tell different types of stories and whereas when you're when you're younger you you do probably say more of what you're feeling or trying to be able to express your feelings yeah yeah um and as you get older you understand your feelings better so you can talk and present music in a, a different way in a more mm. grown-up way and I, yeah but I don't know like, people always ask me what's your style of music and I just kind of think just listen to me and tell me tell me what you, t- <laughs> you take from it you know like and was like music the plan then um I think part of you always hopes that could be a reality but I never thought that I thought like I'm gonna have to go and well f- first of all when I was really young I wanted to be a goalkeeper um but I was just terrible as I say and then uh I, st- I got kind of taken into playing rugby which is just not the done thing where I came from but I was quite good at it and I really loved it I love I love the sport I don't like I don't like the atmosphere and the kind of like culture that comes with it so I always felt like a bit of an outcast even when I was playing well it's never really felt like it was for me but my, my parents really hoped I would try and pursue that because they thought I could be a great player if I put my mind to it and I was doing some good things with it but I always really loved English, a bit like yourself, and I, I thought maybe I should go and study uh, English, or uh, actually applied to do law uh, at uni. I'm super glad I didn't go. So then I, I thought, well, I may as well try the music thing. I didn't have any plans. I don't know. I don't know what my plan was. And I, you know, but you know, the thing I would always say is like I'm, I've always been acutely aware that I'm not an exceedingly talented person, and like people will always say to me like, oh no, I like you're great. I'm like, no, I, I, I work really hard. I'm not a natural singer. I'm not a natural performer like I see people all the time and they've got natural talent but then at the same token what I would say is like a lot of the people I meet and especially when I'm being asked to write for people who have exceptional talent they're so lazy because they know they're good you know like I knew I sucked so I knew how hard I had to work (laughs) right yeah I I had a lot of work to do to be good and there's Um, something in that you know I started reading a book the other night there and it was about this guy who was like a champion table tennis player and it's that kind of weighing up is it innate talent or is it just hard work? You know, can mm-hmm. can you become the best if you just really, really try and just work at it? And that thing where you've got to do like something, is it 10,000 hours or something before you become really yeah. good at it or something? But there is something in that. You know, we can so. all improve on whatever skill, even if it's like a tiny glimmer of a skill. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think like I have a, a natural ability with music where I, I take to it easier. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean I can just do it like you still got to work and you still got to like really do it and and, and even as a songwriter you know I've always said and I, and I maintain that it's a skill you know you, you're not just good at writing songs that like you, you you learn and you get older and you get better and and that's what's confused me that with a lot of acts where it's like as they get on I'm like you, as you get older 
you should be better at writing. Like your album shouldn't get worse. See the second album thing. It's like that shouldn't be worse. Like you should be getting better. You need to do. You need to do better. But then I imagine a lot of times people will start to get surrounded by, like yes men and telling them they're amazing and oh just do that. And I, I remember we released our first single and we at the time like we were we were getting a bit of buzz and we were meeting labels. And a guy from a label came. He actually came to Kamarnock. I didn't live there at the time, but we we had the show there, and he came up to Kamarnock, and we were sitting having dinner before the show, and he was like, oh, "Well, can't wait to see the band," and he was like, "You know, I've listened to some of the demos you're pitching for doing your album, and uh, they're good, you know, but I think with your single Dead or Alive, you should just kind of try and make another Dead or Alive." And I was like, "What?" And he was like, "Yeah, make another Dead or Alive." I was like, "Your honest industry advice is to make the same song again." Like, what world are you what living is in? That? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What does that and, mean? And that is, sadly, though, there's so many people like that in the industry who have been, I don't know, well off and rich enough at being working in music and their parents have let them... Because the thing is, like, how could someone working class like afford to take the opportunity to work in music? They probably couldn't. There's, mm. it's, there's less and less. And you meet these rich kids, students from London and all that that don't know anything about music or writing and they're telling you how to make songs because they've seen it in some like universal produced documentary where they're trying to sell their own product like get get real you know I, I am at times critical of the industry but because I love it because I think it's one of the greatest things on earth and I think music's a blessing and I think music should be purchased and it should be a wealthy business but it should be fair and the, the problem is it's you know there's all this chat right now like oh the music industry is going to collapse because of coronavirus now, the same people at the bottom are going to struggle to get by yeah. and the same people at the top will do very little work and be richer than the other 80% of the industry. So like, it's not that the industry isn't collapsing because of coronavirus, the industry is co- collapsing because of greed. And the thing is, you're in it because you adore music. That is your passion. You totally. love it. And yeah, like, money makes the world go round, blah, blah, blah. But you would hope that you would be in an environment where everybody is like-minded and is there for mm-hmm. the right reasons, not there for, for money. It's funny the way the world works because when... And it works the same in every industry, and I'm sure the same will have happened in, in dance and choreographing as well, where when something becomes uh, does well, the industry just thinks, let's keep doing that. And then they make 100 versions of it, and then by the end, it's made no return. Instead of going, that was great, what can we do next? Yeah, yeah. That was great, let's do this. And and it's like, they think that having four big acts will sustain them, but like if they, if they had 40 really good acts, it would actually make more money in the long run. But they don't think long-term, they think... What's the next yeah. quick fix? You know, I, I just think the, the system's the system's broken. Like, And there's no alternative either. You know, at least when we were younger, when we had pop music, if you didn't like it, you could go to Kerrang and Scuzz and it really felt like there was something else. And uh, now it's like cool to like pop music. It should never be cool to like pop music. I'm not saying pop music isn't good or cool, <laughs> but like, so you know what I mean? It, it shouldn't be cool to like. That's 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 wrong. Like even the music industry should think that's wrong because then, you, you know, if you take it down to storytelling, like, if you went to see the Marvel film and there was no villain, what would you be watching? So true. Right? So if you go to the wrestling and you've got a good guy, like if there's no bad guy, yeah. that good guy can't really be good. And the same goes for music. If you have like pop music, you have to have an alternative. Yeah. Maybe not quite the same sound because obviously you're always going to put a bit more money into pop and the manufacturing and that's cool. But there's no real alternative. So then there's no competition and the industry does worse. And, and like, that's just the basic principle of like, like how things work. And it's like, how, how have we got to a point where like, it's cool to like pop, man. That's that's not how it should be. So, like, what has been your experience thus far? Obviously, you touched on the industry and, like, you know, that um, <clears throat> guy sort of coming to your gig and, and giving that quite awful advice. What 
has been your experience thus far? Um, I would I would say, which a lot of bands will go through as well, is I, I've I've been often promised the world, and then been delivered very little. And the at times the the most that ever comes are things that you do that you put your mind to doing, and and then things start to fall in place. I had a I had management for a while, and um. It's funny because they had all these contacts and I used to think, and I see it, and, and now I see it happening for other bands, by the way. So they had all these contacts and I used to think, why don't they just get me on this or that? And uh, Adrian used to always say to me, like, just, just, you're not ready. It's not what you could do it tomorrow if you want, but it's not going to mean anything in the long run. And, and I couldn't understand that. I was mm. just like, man, he's, I think he's trying to hold me back or something. Me and Adrian are still friends. So like, we don't, we don't work together anymore, but um, I just started going and doing my own thing and I was doing things the way I wanted to, but you don't have access to that. So you have to make, things happen mm. uh and, and now i see it where bands have management and they have the opportunity to do things and i see those things happening so they're getting like press or supports or things above where they are as an artist and then i'm looking at it going oh that was too early you've you've not got anything to back that up so it is a business and you have to you have to get it right and if, if things happen too soon you, you know with a lot of people you've got one opportunity to show them who you are and if you go to all these people and say like this is me now and then a year later you've got an album where you're quite different because that was you were learning at the time they, they just remember that first time they mm. saw you and go no nah, it wasn't for me mate mm. I don't care that you've got a new album out you weren't for me I learned a lot from Adrian in terms of like getting things right and being patient and not always feeling like you have to please other people you know do do what's right yeah. for you as an artist and get it right and so but I, I've had a lot of um, negativity and a lot of positivity and but I've had so many opportunities that like I I will forever be grateful for. You know, like we we got to tour with uh, the View, we got to tour with the Libertines, uh, we got to play in Hyde Park, we played Alexander Palace, we played the Barris, I think three times as a support. And you know, now I look back and go, man, those opportunities were life changing, mm. and they they gave me an opportunity to not not just you know the biggest thing I took from the, the supporters wasn't like the audience or the potential thing you could get from it it was like learning how to be on a stage of that size okay learning how that worked how the day worked how the setup worked how the stage was set mm. how you because when you play at Tuts like that's a relatively small stage right and that's the stage size for that you're used to when you go to the barrows there's so much room in the stage you're like Oh my goodness, where did I go? I can't stand in one spot. The stage is massive. <laughs> so then in that support tour, I was thinking, well, I need to try and convince people I deserve to be in this stage. But when you take that back to touch or whatever, then, then you come back as a band that's like ready. And I, I feel like if the opportunity ever presented ourselves for us as a band to do bigger and better things, I feel like now we'd be ready to put on performances that match those venues because we've had the experience. Got yeah. Whereas yeah. If, you've, if you've gone from nothing to being dropped into arena shows, how do you know how to command that stage? How do you know how to be on that stage? Yeah, it's an art in itself, isn't it? Like the performance totally. is one thing, being in a band and, you know, rehearsing or being in the studio and recording and writing and all that. But then, yeah, when you're plonked on a stage in front of an audience, what is your on stage kind of persona? Who are you when you're on stage? Like, you know, in between songs, like, are you talking to the audience? Do you not talk? Like all these things that maybe artists maybe wouldn't have had the time or the opportunity to consider. Like, who am yeah. I? Crowd psychology as well. Like, you know, in a smaller room is easier than a bigger room. But I always say to the band, like, when we're doing sets or whatever, I'm like, nah, it's got to be this. And, and when we're on a tour, we'll review the set. I'll be like, 
and, and you know, like I, I tour managed for an act as well, and, and mm-hmm. he used to come to me after, and we'd talk about sets, and I'd be like, you know, this would work here, and this this is how the crowd acted here. I think tomorrow you need to think about did you pace that right? You know, like you're taking that crowd on a journey, so it's like you've got two choices. You know, it's different for different bands, but you can start a hundred miles an hour, but then you've got to have your dip and go back up. Yeah. And if you start too hard, you're going to drop. So it's like, and and I love to do sets where you build. And you get people going and then you have your peaks and troughs and that's how it should be. It should be a journey. It shouldn't just be like hundred miles an hour and people can't take in. You've got people have to feel like they've experienced a show. They've been mm. part of something. That's how I look at it anyway. Isn't it? Yeah, that, that that totally resonates. Like even like just doing sets from a dance troupe. Sometimes I'm like, am I overthinking this? Totally. I always look at it like if, if people have paid to see us play, like I want to give them the best possible show. And, and it's funny because a lot of people think like, we need to put on the best show, we're going to sell more tickets and records. And I just think, no, nah, like, they've bought a ticket, like they've paid to see you, man. Like, have the respect Aye. to turn up and put on a show that they've they've paid their hard-earned money to see you do well. Yeah, it's not just like, oh, well, you're here now, so I can do what I like. Yeah, and, and I think the same goes for albums, you know, like, I always think about albums and I think about pace and people have this temptation to be like, oh, it should be like, like everything has to be a banger. It's like, you have to, you have to have like, people have to see different sides of you and emotions and and I loved being on those bigger tours as well because I've always been someone who who loves to know how something's happening. So when I sat in a studio, I'd be like, why, why are you doing that? And they'd be like, what do you mean? I'm like, why, what's that button do? Why, 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 why are you changing this or that? And they'd be like, this <laughs> is why. And, and the same as in tour, I would just walk up to people on the tour and I'd be like, excuse me, what is it you're doing? And they'd be like, oh, mate, like I'm... <laughs> I'm the rigger or whatever. I'm I, I do the lightings and I'm like, cool. Like, and then I learned I learned all about that. And then, yeah. but my management saw me being like that, and they said, uh, could you come and help out in the next tour? Not as an artist, just come and help us in a tour. And I was like, yeah, and I, I ended up doing it, and I loved it. And because of like growing up when I grew up, I thought my job was to help anyone. They they were like, just come and be helpful, and we've got some tasks for you. To me, everyone in that tour was like a, a level above, and I was pure in awe of anyone in the tour. So see, even the guys like doing the load in I was like oh my goodness you do load ins for big bands like that's amazing so I, I would be going up to like like crew and roadies and drivers and saying can I get anything for you and they'd be like looking at me just what what and I was like do you need anything because I, I, I can go and get stuff and I'm like two cents I'll go and get his like water and I, I remember being at a festival I think it was Redden Redden and Leeds and um, they were setting up for the band and I, I was I was doing my wee bits and bobs I had things to do for the band and things to do for management and all these things and I looked on the stage and, and none of the crew had like water and I was like, you just have any water in for two cents? I went down to the festival folk. I was like, can I get some water early? Like, yeah, absolutely. Took up all these waters. And the, the crew guys are like, we've never had anyone come up and ask us if we'd like anything. Like, what, what are You're you like, doing? This is what you call kindness. This is and I, a, no, but I was human. like, but, no, but I was even thinking that. I was like, if I thought that was my job, like I thought I was supposed to help you. It's like, I'm just, I'm just trying to be useful so I don't get fired. <laughs> I love that though. That's that's important, and people remember that kind of stuff, and that's that's important not to lose sight of that. Yeah, like you may be at a certain level in your career, but like you can always like every you should see everybody as equal. That yeah. everybody's job's important. You wouldn't be on that stage if it wasn't for the guys rigging the lights up and putting the equipment on the stage. I, and- I tell you what, like people can say everyone's job's important. The most important people in in the music business are the crew, and right. I'll, I'll never not believe that man. Like, see that red and lead show. We had the option like to do the splitting the shift. See, see the boys that did the first shift. The Metallica were the headline the night before the band I was working for. And the boys doing the first shift had to go in as soon as their set finished and start the construction for the next night's headline, like through the night. And they were there. When I got there wow. in the morning, I, I went in early. I thought I went in early at like eight in the morning or something. They'd been in there since two in the morning. And they were mm-hmm. there till right at the end of the set. You know, they're the first people in and the last people out. And they, they yeah. work harder than any, anyone. And I understand that the bands make the music and they turn up and play the show. 
But they're there for all of, what, six hours at the most, if they even bother to turn up for sound checks. Those guys are there day in, day out, uh, often at risk, you know. Sometimes these rigging jobs can be dangerous, like they're not. Of course. You you know, they're big, big stages. And I don't know, I just feel like they don't get the same love and praise as they should. So true. The stories they have, I loved sitting with them. You know, I loved sitting there here. I just was, and and the funny thing is as well, they're often bigger music fans than the artist. Well, that's what I was thinking. You're like a lot of these people would get into that industry because of their absolute passion for music and are just in it and grafting and not needing to be the star. Totally. You recognise that and we're just like, I am going to roll up my sleeves and get that's it. in. And they, I think they appreciated it. And now I've been, you know, I ended up working in yeah. more tours and I ended up tour managing. And when they see you, they're like, oh, that's great. And like some of the boys are like, man, like I'm, I'm happy you're doing it because you've come and you've learned and you understand. And, and it's funny because crew, crew guys can often be understandably to me standoffish because they're so used to artists being rude to them. Or thinking they're too good. And it's funny when you stand and talk to them and then you, you say, like, oh, do you know such and such? And they're like, oh, you know them? What a guy. And then they're like, you've definitely crewed. Mm. And I'm like, oh, no, man, I'm not crewed like yours, but I've I've met some people and I've had some amazing opportunities. And uh, I don't know, I just, I, like I say, I have an absolute love of this business and the people that make it go around. And I, yeah, I, I do believe that they are the people I admire the most. And just when you meet them, you know, like I say, their passion for music is like, no one can level it. I, like at the end of the day, I don't think you would turn up that early and stay that late if, if you could be leveled. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I admire that, how inquisitive you are about the industry. And like, you know, if you just speak to people and treat them as you would want to be treated, yeah. then it makes for a better experience all around. Because I, I guess that's how bands and artists can get burnout as well because they're not just having these normal interactions where they're like asking questions and just having normal conversations you know they're having to put on this persona yeah all the time. they take themselves too serious right they just mm. I've, I've just always looked at it though like i mean you you've been to Largs. it's a small town i've just always looked at it like my god like i grew up in Largs. the fact that i'm living this i'm such a chancer like i'm just like blagging my <laughs> way through it so like i just appreciate like oh you're not though you're not though you're working super hard and you're talented but I get where you're coming from. I, I appreciate it. But, yeah. but you know what? Like, see, the first the first major support I think I ever did was Pete Doherty at the Liquid Rooms in Edinburgh. And I, I'll never forget that he, for all people who say about Peter, I, I remember I was walking up the hill, I had my guitar in my hand, and he came out the bus and he said, oh, are you Mr. Brown Bear? And I was like, that's me. And he was <laughs> like, it's really nice to meet you. And he's like, and, and he's like, let me show you the venue. And he, he took me inside and showed me about and see when he was in, he was like saying to people like, like the, the, the cleaners and stuff were in and the bar staff were in setting up and he was saying, oh, my name's Peter. Thanks very much for being here. Like if, if you weren't here, the show wouldn't happen. And I've just never seen such like politeness and respect for like everything around them. And that was my first experience. So I carried that forward. Like, well, that must be how it should be. And I like that. And obviously then you get on and you see how everyone else is and you're like, oh my goodness. And it makes me sad to think like the, the shit they post about Peter online and, and they and the way they praise other artists and, and you think, I've met that other artist and I can tell you. Behind closed doors, they, they are one of the worst human beings you'll ever meet. Whereas Peter's like the opposite. He's probably the, he's one of the most polite people I've ever met in my life. So, so genuinely lovely. And, and that, that's the funny thing about music, you know, and the frustrating thing because you meet a lot of people and then you see them and, and worse you see people raving about them you think oh but I've seen how horrible they are and it makes me so sad yeah and it's like it's showing vulnerability and just being like a normal person and going like do you know what I don't know that asking questions and stuff like I think sometimes people see that as a weakness like oh you look like a wee amateur mm-hmm. 
you know, standing good stead for just being honest and open and just yeah. being vulnerable. I don't know all. I've not got it all figured out. It doesn't matter how long I've been doing this. Like every day should be a school day. And like you were saying, talking about like second albums and artists that have been going for years, like everything should be getting better because you should be constantly seeking out that learning. Totally. And if that's talking to people, asking questions, if that's working really, really hard at you know, your instrument or whatever it is, like you should always strive to be better. I, I've always maintained that there's no such thing as a stupid question, but there's a lot of stupid answers. <laughs> well, that's good. I'm asking all the questions. I don't need to give you any answers. <laughs> that works for me. Well. That. <laughs> so obviously we're in this crazy mental time right now and um before we started recording, I think it was you'd mentioned that you guys were set to release a single and then this all happened and we all went into lockdown. And so what has that then looked like for you? Yeah, I mean, we have a, a follow-up single to come and we've got some other content. So we, we planned ahead, not because we thought this was going to happen, but just because we wanted to be able to hit momentum at the right time. And, you know, we're, we're, we're self-funded. Like, we don't have any management or labels or backing or anything. So, uh, you know, it just if, if we have a bit of money, we think we'll maybe this is time to put it in to make sure we can afford to do it in the future and so we kind of planned to do that and then it just totally derailed so now we're just thinking of like some more content to just get us through the the next month and then we've got a lot of stuff planned but we just want to get it right you know and we want to give it the best service and we're aware that like we'd hope to be back in by now recording follow-up singles or even better if we could uh, we'd be making the second album but Mm. when we'll be allowed to be back in a, a studio we don't know but it's been great you know we're having to think harder about how we're going to do things and alternative ways to make releases and we're all demoing instead of like rehearsing we're like demoing at home and sending things back and forth and saying how's this part for you and that and it's been nice to have a bit more rapport with everyone and videos are a big part of Boomberg that we've got really into making and and we love it so like I spent a lot of the last week doing pre-production on the next video and we've got an amazing idea and it's but it's like a a big one so we're trying to figure out one when we'll be allowed to do it and two how, how we're going to and the see with everything and when you're self-employed or like self-funded you're always thinking about how you're going to afford to do it and like the whole musical video thing like that it totally excites me as a dancer and like you know and never having never been in a music video but um like the concept of a music video and like getting to make a music video you've got your song and you're like right i've got this vision is is did the whole band get involved in that or is that something that you feel is your kind of remit i think you know i i am the writer so i tend to write things but what I would say is like anyone that works with us is valued as an equal part of the project. So if I write a song and I take it to the band and I say, this is a song and they say, we don't think it is, then I respect that. I, I always think like, see, see the, two things will happen. If you say to someone, this is what I want to do and they say, no, you either go, do you know what? You're right. Or you go, no, I think you're wrong and you'll prove why you should fight for mm-hmm. the song and hopefully it works out. And then I tend to demo everything myself as well, demo all the parts. I kind of play all the parts and then I come to them and I say, this is my idea. But uh, this time round, I'm trying to do it differently where I've done that for myself and they've heard it, but I'm trying to redo them and say like, okay, now we're going to do it. I want to hear what your take on it is. And I, I really want them to be more involved. There's six members in the touring band because we've got two backing singers, Sabrina and Wendy, who are amazing musicians. And uh, you know the thing about the Brown Bear is like everyone in the band has other kind of projects or things they work on as well. So we're not one of those bands that like, oh, we live together, we rehearse every week. Like, I mean, if we were rehearsing, like, it would probably be after a week, you know, maybe maybe before the gig, a week or two before it's the first time we see each other in a while. And it kind of works for everyone. We really enjoy and appreciate our time together rather than feeling like it's a drag or... It, but for the video process, like, Tom and Hannah, I, I work with them pretty much every video. 
they've become like part of the brown bear team you know like so i'll always go to them like again like I tend to have a vision for the video or like write an idea, but I'm always open to it. like sometimes it's Tom or Hannah that pitches. But for this one though, you know, I had an idea and I went, This is what I want to do. And they're like, Cool, love it. Then, you know, now I'm trying to learn skills. So I'm learning new skills. I'm trying to learn how to like put scenes together and how, and again, like I said, I'm obsessed with knowing how things are done. So when we were here, I think that's what Tom took to me because the first time we're shooting a video, I'd be like, Why do you shoot like that? Or how does this work? How are we going to do that? How does this work? And then, you know, by the next time Tom talks to me, I'll be pitching the video and I'll say, I want to do this, but I understand that this is how it works. So we can't do this. Then he's like, oh, cool. Right. You get it. And now we're at a point where I'm like, how, how, how could we do this? Or here's an idea and this is how we could transition the shot. And Tom's like, amazing. Well thought out. Yeah. I just love, I love putting together videos. I love the, the process of how we're going to film them. Because I feel like music videos was just such an important part of growing up. Yeah, absolutely. And I just feel as if there's not... As much emphasis totally. on that now, obviously, MTV and stuff. It's a lost art. 100%. Totally. And, and you know, it's funny, like, you see, because we own all our own songs and we can do whatever we want, like, we just make the videos we think suit it. We don't have any, like, label breathing down us saying, like, don't say that. That's too controversial. Or, oh, we don't know if that's the right thing. We just, I, just, I just say, like, this is the message we're saying and this is how we're going to say it. And they're like, cool, sounds good. We do it. When we did the covers video, you know, we, we were like, let's try and do a video in a day. Why not? We've got a camera. And we did. And it was such good fun. And hopefully the, the fun of that experience reflects in the video and then people engage with that. And I, and I feel like our videos are almost how our music's digested now. Like, and what people look forward to is maybe like, what are they going to do next with content? Like everything's of a high standard content wise. And it's funny because I've heard of bands getting in touch with Tom and major labels getting in touch with Tom and starting to question how, how we're making the videos. And I, and I always think it's funny because they, they don't think that's important and then they see it doing well and they go, oh. Now it's important. But the, the, the funny <laughs> thing is, that Truth About Consequence video was shot for less than £100. Jeez. I mean, like we, we have no money. We just have to, we have to think up ways to make videos for nothing because we don't have well, budgets. That's, that, do you know I mean? It's, that's creativity. That's using your loaf. Totally. And going, right, how are we going to make that happen? And I've seen videos of people sitting playing guitar in a woods or a forest and I know it's cost five grand. And I think, <laughs> You're what? like, eh? If, if you gave us five grand, we'd we'd have made like the most mental yeah, video. Yeah, yeah. And but then, uh, but then, me, me and Tom always have the chat of like, let's keep honing our skills so when money comes, we can make something really great. Because in some ways, now if we had too much money at our, our disposal, we probably we probably wouldn't make a great video because we'd be too busy trying to do stupid things. And see, see, when you have nothing, you're like, it forces you to go. We need to simplify this video to tell the best possible story. Yeah, uh, and it comes to the song. about funding, like as as you know, an artist, I've never applied for funding, and that's mm-hmm. not. I don't wear that as a badge of honor. That has just been something. It's just not married, dar, and um, it scares me really. Yeah, it's, it's intimidating. Like, you know, get somebody else's money. Yeah, just the whole money aspect. Like, I, I, I get, I totally get what you're saying. Like, you can achieve so much if you just put your head together. I, I've always maintained that, like, if you go in thinking about money, you'll do anything for that money and that's fine if that's what you want to be like if you want to make money just go and be like an x-factor type just go and make money don't make music because they're not the same thing but if you if you want to make something you believe in believe in it and make it and then hopefully when people see that you've meant it they they want to invest in it 100 and maybe that's naive maybe that's like where i'm going to fall down in life that I, 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 but i have this belief that if if we keep making consistently good stuff i'm not saying it's going to be a number one or it has to be the greatest thing but if we're consistently good at some point someone will turn around and say do you know what like 
he's worked hard and he's consistently good. We should we should give him the opportunity to make something of it. Well, the thing is, what is the alternative? Like, you obviously love it. You mm-hmm. love doing it. You love the act of doing it. Everything that's involved, you absolutely love it. So the alternative would be to kind of sell out and where would the joy come how many, from? How many times have you seen, and maybe you've seen it in the dance world, where this person's like, I want to be signed, I want to be it. And then they get signed and it doesn't work out and they get dropped. And it's not like they keep doing music. They, they just go like, well, I'm going to go do something else now. And they say, well, did you love, did you really love music? See the bit of bands, I think, imagine if you asked them what records they listen to, like, they've got this stock answer of like bands that suit their genre. And it's like, mate, I'm, like if people start me talking about like songs and songwriting, I'm just like, oh my goodness, what about this and that? And, and, and this record, and I'm just obsessed with, and mm. I'm like, this is the greatest lyric of all time. And I'm like, no, no, no this is the greatest lyric of all time. And it's like an obsession. Well, for you, it's like a lifelong thing. It doesn't sound to me like you're like, when I get to this, then I'll be happy. Mm-hmm. When I, get, I mean, obviously, there's things, that I guess, that you would like to achieve totally. and experience within your career. And that, you know, that's fine. You, should, I think it's important to have a goal, but that's not like an, necessarily like an end goal. Yeah. Do you know what's funny? I always say, and, and I've had people say to me, like, that's not, if you only aim that high, it's the size you get. Like, you should be aiming higher, aim for the stars and all this. Like, but I always say to people like my my dream is just to like sell out the Barrowlands. That's it, man. And then they say like, why don't you want to do more? Why do you want to do arenas? I'm like, because I am a music band, and the bar is, is history. Mm-hmm. And like that should the if, if if selling out the hydro means more than selling out of the bar is to you, then you're in the wrong business. I'm not saying I mean financially selling out the hydro should be more than selling out the bar is. But like, see, in terms of iconicness, selling out of the bar is surely as a Scottish person from the West Coast, it's surely the dream of every musician. If, if that's all, if that's all I ever did in music, like I'd just die happy. Like, but the thing is, I'll always keep doing it. Like, whether we can fill a venue or not, like, I'll always be writing songs. I'll be writing for people. I'll be trying to be creative and, uh, you know, you know, maybe not. Like, I w- I wouldn't always say performing. Like, I, I'm not sure that I love it as much as I should it's a weird one isn't it like I, I kid on I hate performing I hate playing live but like see when I get started you know I will not be stopping <laughs> see when I start enjoying it I, I'm like I always see, I get because I get dead nervous in it and I, I, I don't really mm. I don't really feel like I'm good enough to be on stages right so I get nervous I'm like oh I don't know man and then I got up and folk are into it and then I, I, you know maybe before we go on I'm like this is it this is the songs we're playing and then the next thing the band are like oh my god here we go he's throwing in old songs that we've not rehearsed and I'm like, come on. I'm like, just not do this cover, it's cool. I'll do it myself. Let's do it. <laughs> That's the thing, though. I'm sure loads of people that perform in any sort of capacity will be like, like that'll resonate with them because, yeah, you over, and as an artist, I think you tend to just overthink things. So mm-hmm. when you're going back into performing, you know, if you've not done it for a couple of weeks or a couple of months or whatever it is, you just then, you it becomes this whole other thing in your head. And then, like you say, the minute you start, you're like, oh, this is fine. Oh, I've got this. Yeah. But it's just the build-up in totally. it. And, and I almost I almost enjoy more doing a reduced schedule, like doing minimal shows, because I appreciate them. And I'd rather do like five good shows a year than 20 shit ones. I have to say, sometimes I do do like a big run of like solo shows and, that, and I end up loving it. I don't know, like I I, I love I love the, the kind of small solo shows because I like that you the people that turn up like really know your tunes and you get to know them and like they almost become your pals in that city and it's like more of a wee holiday seeing your pals up north or like down south and I, I don't know like I feel like music should be like 
songs and chatting. Like I loved sitting talking to folk and playing tunes with them, or like sitting playing records and chatting. And I almost wish gigs were just like that. You just sat and talked to folk about what they liked the music and played some of your songs. Maybe like, oh, I actually love that song, and then played it. And shows were more relaxed. Like sometimes I like that yeah. atmosphere. And well, I mean, I guess music is all about connection, isn't it? Yeah, I think so, and I think it's a soundtrack for your life, isn't it? Like. Yeah, the music that you listen to, the music you create, it is, it absolutely is. And it must be just the most incredible thing when people are, like, singing back your music to you. Like, Unreal. I wrote that. We, we played King Tuts last year and it was sold out and we thought, that's cool. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be, like, all about you. I don't know how to explain this, but, like, we thought it's good that it's sold out, but we might be in a room full of people that think, like, this is it, we're giving you one more chance to impress us, but we're, we're just going to come and listen to you. Even though they've come to see you, doesn't mean that they've come to love you. Like, okay. And we went out, and honestly, from start to finish, folk were screaming back the words. And I was like, oh my God, we, we didn't really know what it is. And I was like, but it, it felt so good because it was like, okay, finally we're starting to see that what we've been working towards is paying off. Mm, you're just doing your thing because that's what you need to do. You're yeah. like, I can't imagine doing anything else. But then when somebody actually appreciates what you've done and thinks it's brilliant, you're like, all right, cool. Totally. Well, thanks. That's amazing. And then it's funny because you go from being like, well, I'll just do it and we'll see what happens to like, right, now we need to keep that going. Now we need to make it better. Now it's time to like, it gives you a kick up the arse to be like, right, okay, we need to do this. And It feels like you've got a bit of responsibility to the people who have invested in you. Yeah, but, but it's such a hard line because you, 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 you have to think about, there's two sides to it. It's like, do you go and do you tour and just play to whoever because you want to meet people and just have a laugh? Or do you say, okay, we're doing select shows now because we need to see the growth in the audience and we need to perception like there's yeah. such a, a a battle between the uh, the perception and, and the industry and just enjoying it. But uh-huh. but I, again, like I think a lot of people assume when you're doing sold out shows that you're making a lot of money and it's just not true. Like you you make nothing from shows sometimes and that's why you have to tour yeah. and you have to go and do shows. And you know, promoters or management or whoever gets involved with you will say to you oh, you shouldn't be doing as many of these smaller shows. You shouldn't do this. It doesn't look good for you. And it's like, well, man, I've, I've got bills to pay. Bills, <laughs> I've got right, eat. Totally. If you want to you know pay I mean? my bills, that'd be lovely. Thank you. I, unless you're going to start paying my bills, I'll, I'll be taking these shows on, thanks. And I think that's obviously the difficulty and the joy. It's like a paradox of, you know, calling shots and doing your thing and not having anybody, management or whatever, that you have creative control and control of the, the business side of things. So then you yeah. you can collectively go, what is right for us? But then you then have to have all those difficult conversations or that kind of trial and tribulation of like, is this the right thing to do? The, the overthinking again. But then the alternative, yeah. you know, of, of handing over your, essentially your baby, it must be really difficult to know what's best. I've kind of said, like, I think the only time I would maybe be tempted back to management would be if we were at a really nice point as a band and things were taking over, but I'd started to maybe dip my toe elsewhere. Like I'm obviously doing a lot of work on, because of the video stuff, I've started to dip into their world of like shorts and talking about shorts and films and stuff, both like writing and being behind the scenes or being in them. So, mm. you know, if that if that became an option, I think I would maybe, that would be the time I would be like, you, you know, but that's like, that's like management because you're like, well, I'm not going to be here, so I need someone to look after. Yeah, yeah. That's for now. I think that would be the only situation where I would maybe do that because I, I I love like the business side of it, you know, and I and I like to know where we stand and and you know there's been times from when I had management and I've met people since. I actually met uh, someone from Eden Festival once uh, that worked as a booker and they and I, I was talking to him. I was like, hey, how, how have you never asked me to play that festival? And he was like, I asked you to play it. We asked you to headline a stage and you said no. 
I was like, I never, I was, I, I was never even told that. You no. know I mean, so my management obviously turned it down and said, nah, he's not doing That's it. Mental. Never told me, never, never gave me a say in that. Jeez, oh man, I can't believe that. Uh, I was devastated. I was like, man, I, I would have done that in a heartbeat. Yeah, you're like, you're thinking like, how could that have been a bad thing? Like, how could that have been, you know, not a sensible totally. choice? But I think sometimes your management will think, well, that stage and the other people on it aren't where you are at as an artist and we want to pitch you higher. Whereas I just think, like, surely pitching me a bit lower is better than me not being there. Exactly. This is what I mean. That artists take themselves and, and managements take them so seriously sometimes. Some of the best gigs I've ever done was, was like someone saying, like, would you come and play here? And I'm like, yeah, sure, sounds good. And then folks see you and they're like, they're like, what are you doing here? I'm like, I don't know, someone asked me and I came and it's good. But they, they appreciate it. Well, this is the fact. Like, you know, you're on my podcast, Sebastian. You, you yeah. did it. You know, like I, I guess it's just about going with your gut, trusting your gut a lot of the time. Like I, I can be a serial self doubter mm-hmm. in, in my own decisions, and then I'm like, well, you've done all right so far. Nothing catastrophic has happened. Mm-hmm. So if it feels all right, just do it. Just totally. do it. Aye, absolutely. You'll live and you'll learn. You know, creativity is a funny thing, and people say like, this is a great time to be creative, and I'm like, nah, man, like. That. I've done not I've done all, I've, you know I've like I've written the second album and I'm just enjoying not thinking that way and and, and yeah. I love I'm writing for other people and I love writing for folk I just like it keeps my mind away from things I'm worrying about and the thing is like with, with everyone I write with I always think of it like it's not that they need co-writers or anything like that I think they just like need a bit of direction or a bit of help and then I'm, I'm like I'm hoping that like eventually they just turn around and like I don't need to write with you because I can do it like I just like to help people get to that end place and I, I suppose it's the same with dance you're yeah. trying to like help the project get there and I just I just like to see great music and great songs and yeah and the, the fact that there's room for everybody that you don't have this ego where you're like well I don't want to be helping them because like what if they do well no what if they do well that would be lovely it's Scotland's such a small place like if, if someone does well it's good for everyone because exactly. we're, we're often overlooked 100% Cameron Barnes was on the podcast mm-hmm. and he said the same thing like just if we all just supported each other it would just help massively it was Cameron Barnes that chatted me into doing one of those shows I was talking about up in what is it? yeah he put me on in leaving he was like come here I was like I, I don't even know where that is I said, just do it might not be good and it was it was it was amazing yeah he's a good guy Cameron. yeah he's lovely he's one of those people to talk about other bands you know I, I'm like that I, I love new music and I'm always like oh if I hear something I, even if even if I've heard that the person said that like, they don't like me or if I know they wouldn't like my music I'm just like what I it's a good song man let's share it see the amount of bands that don't even reply or like retweet yeah I'm just like what are you too cool to like say cheers like what is that about like <laughs> why, why do you think it's you're too cool to talk to another band like just we're all in this together and people you know that like, people often think I'm like unapproachable or grumpy what? like that. the vibe I'm getting is just like you are the loveliest person who is just in love with what you do like i'm feeling your slogan is like work hard and be nice yeah totally and be be on time work hard be, <laughs> be nice and be on time and, and uh <laughs> but it's funny because but it's because bands like will see that you've done something and they'll maybe assume or they think like or they have that like oh, do they think i'm better than them and instead they just come up and saying like oh sorry you did that I, like I, I saw someone recently and i'd never met them before and i walked up to them and i said oh i really loved that song you did i thought it was really brilliant and they just went all right uh i guess your band's all right like they, they clearly couldn't they couldn't keep the conversation going because they didn't know any of my songs whereas like I, I pride myself and if I hear a new act in Scotland I go and look them up and I try and listen to them and I try and love them mm, make an effort. yeah and, and man I, I, and it's funny I'm really good friends with Carly Connor I don't know if you know Carly but um, yeah I've followed um, her yeah we have like mutual friends but then we have maybe like different friends as well and she's like it's, 
I think it's so funny when I hear the people's opinion of you because I think like my god like they just don't know you like they just have this assumption that you're like this and it's like mental like I don't know where they've worked from I'm like I don't know either I just I keep myself to myself man I don't look for bother from anyone yeah but then I guess people just they are just going to make assumptions about you see see when they see you being proud of what you have done sometimes people think think you're arrogant Mm. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's came up a million times in the podcast about this whole Scottish mentality. I think it's like a Scottish mm-hmm. thing, not wanting to appear big-headed, saying like, oh, I did a thing. It feels like sometimes like you're bragging. You're like, well, no, I enjoyed doing the thing. When you post it on social media, it's the intention is not to be like, look how amazing I am and, you know, put everybody else down. It's just like, I did a thing and I feel really chuffed that I, I got to I do it. I think there's a way of posting as well. Like, like I mean... If, if you if you're sincere about it, like how can someone say you know if I, I would always be like oh that was amazing we got this opportunity like I'm grateful like I can't believe the news but yeah. you know if you're if you're rubbing it into people's faces then that's different you know like there's but you're right it's that mentality and, and up here and everyone thinks it's a competition and it's like man just just go and be happy for each other and be be sound it's it's hard because because I work for people on shows sometimes I'm with a band who are maybe bigger but because I'm working in the show or I'm tour managing or whatever. And some people will see me. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I can be very, I'm very blunt with people. You know, if I had something to say to someone, I would say it to their face. And some people think that's like a lot. I always tell the story like me and Billy Mitchell were on a tour, uh, both supporting, but I was actually there as the tour manager. I didn't know Billy at this time, but every night he used to just leave his shit lying about. So then one day I went up to him and I said, see, see if you do that like, tonight. Like, I'm just going to fucking leave your stuff and you won't have it tomorrow. Like, I'm not here to look after you. I've got enough of a job to do and you're mm-hmm. making my job harder. And he was like, oh, man, I never even thought about that. Like, I didn't mean that. See, every night after that, he was, like, so helpful. But then me, me and Billy are super friends. Like, like I, I love him. And we're, like, yeah. best pals now, you know. I love that. And, but I always say, like, the difference is, like, most people would have never said anything to him. And then they'd have gone and bitched about him. Whereas I would never go and bitch yeah. about someone. I would say it to their face. I would say, this is my problem with you. And then we've got an we've got a chance to sort it and then we're friends and I'll never forget that one of the promoters on that tour was sitting with me and he, he the last night we went out for dinner before the show and he was like you know what I really really loved this tour it was great fun and I was so worried I was like what are you worried he was like well you know I text the act uh when we were putting on this tour and he told me that you were going to be tour managing and I asked him what you were like and he, he texted him back apparently and said uh you'll really like Matt because he's a lovely guy but he's not going to like you and he's going to tell you to your face <laughs> and I was like Wow, <laughs> but he, I was like, but you never, you never did anything that made me have to say something. Like I, I would, I'm not, I don't just say yeah. to people I don't like them. Like, <laughs> but I just, I just like my, my gran and my mum and all that were always like that. And and I'm a firm believer that if you have a problem with somebody, you should just say it, and then you can work it out. Don't don't let it boil over and become something because then it becomes something bigger, right? Yeah. You know, if I ever offended someone, I would want them to say to me because no one's, no one's, no one's free of making mistakes. So so if I said something about someone. I would hope they would say to me, like, when you said that, it made me feel this. And I would always be like, man, I, if I didn't mean it, you know, I'd be like, never my intention and hopefully we can work out. I'd hate to hear, I'd hate to hear it through, like, two or three different people and think, well, why didn't they feel they could just say it to me? My girlfriend, Leslie, was saying the other day we were on a family chat and she was like, man, I would hate to be in your family because it's like the way we all are with each other, you know, like <laughs> my mum, since I was a wee boy, I have called my mum Mandy. I've never called her mum, I've always called her Mandy. That is my most favorite thing that you've told me <laughs> <laughs> like see, see even when i was wee my mum would be like do you want this for dinner at the shop and i'd be like mandy i'm not really into that and she'd be like okay but, but my mum had this utter belief that we were free spirits and we had the right to question anything and we had the right to be that way but the thing about it is people often say like how that's your mum like show her some respect but like i, I say mandy 
because I have so much respect for that woman. And I respect my mum more than anyone on this planet. And I don't say that as an an, an insult. Like I don't, I, I would never yeah, dream yeah. of disrespecting my mum. And my mum knows that. So my mum knows I say that with like utter endearment. And she's like, that's just who you are. That's, that's so funny fine. you decided as a wee person that's what you were going to do. Because like a lot of kids don't know their actual parents' names like until they're a wee bit totally. older. Like they just think they're mum or dad or whatever. But I asked everything, so I would have asked that. Like I'd have been like yeah, three yeah, or four and probably went, mum, what's your actual name? <laughs> Why are you called mum? I also had this thing, like, I, I was so scared of getting lost as a wee boy. My, my mum took us to, like, uh, and my dad, they took us into, like, this, the biggest maze in Britain or something. And uh, my sister's wicked, right? And she got me lost on purpose. Um, and then she came out and then she went, Matt's lost. And I was de- I was crying. So I was always really scared of being lost after that. Yeah. And uh, so, so to me, saying mum was redundant because I knew there'd be loads of mums there. So that I'm like, man, do I need to know your name so that if I get lost, I can shoot you're, you? You're so clever. <laughs> That you yeah. are genius as a child, I feel. <laughs> I think so. Cl- clever enough, you know, to get by. And, you know, like gro- growing up mixed race, like my mum, before I went to school, my mum you know, sat me down and she's like, you know, like I know you don't think too much about, but maybe not, maybe not so much like primary school because she tried to avoid it for a while and then stuff happened and uh, she had to kind of address it. And then after that point, she's like, you know, I guess now's the time to tell you that like respect is earned and you need to always be your best self and you need to always be. Um, trying your hardest in class even if you're not good at it try your hardest at it and always speak your best and be be the best version of you because no matter what you do there it's not just students you might go into a class and there might be a teacher that just hates you because of the way you look or the color of your skin and that's life and I'm not gonna butter it up for you I'm not gonna make you feel better about it I'm not gonna say it's not gonna happen it is what it is and you don't ever play the victim you don't ever go on about it you just accept it and you, and you try and show them that they're wrong because you've done well Right, so we, my whole life was always mm-hmm. like, just be respectful and don't ever let anyone be able to say that you weren't anything other than your best self. I've I've probably taken that attitude forward into music and to work, and it's been an amazing thing, you know, because it's it's a hard thing to be told. Like you know, some people in life are just gonna hate you, and that's it. I can't fathom yeah. that to be honest with you, but your mum sounds Mandy sounds like good people to me. Yeah, she is. She's amazing. She she was a a nurse, um, and then really unfortunately doing care and working in nursing she slipped a disc in her back and she wasn't able to work but she ended up studying and she's become a minister amazing she, she's she's like and it's weird because i'm not religious i wasn't really brought, brought up to be religious or anything and but she is she's found like that and she's so happy and, and she's using all the skills she had as a nurse now to help people in another way and she's so involved with her community and she actually in becoming a minister got the choice of uh communities but she chose to do a rural one because she she could see the help they needed and she has such a love for that community and it's an Ayrshire. Uh, and the amazing thing about my mum, like she would never tell anyone she's really doing it because she's not like that. But when the lockdown happened and churches can't function, like the area she lives in, she's she started a food bank for that area and she's been work, spending lockdown working, making sure that people get fed and have meals, man. She's just a, an amazing human being, you know. She's an uh, amazing human being indeed. Man, yeah. She just cares for people and she just really, really has spent her life doing right by folk. You know, and I and I, I love that so much because, you know, she she was put up for adoption in the sixties. Um, she was adopted by a white couple from Largs, and you know, she was black in the sixties and a woman, and she she went through life, and she's never let that deter her. She's never it was never broken her kindness. She's never lost her faith in humanity. She's like just taken anything that's ever happened to her on the chin. You know, and when she was a nurse, man, she's had people ask her to not come in and treat them because she was black. N- never never stopped her from wanting to go back and treat those people like. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't know. She's just an amazing 
an amazing influence, you know. And I mm. look at that and think, like, well, you know, what, like, like she's instilled so much of her beliefs in what she thinks is important life in you. That's it. Just always be sound. Just always be like I was yeah. like, like, just do right by other people. Just always do. I, I I know I'm not religious, but like I think there's lots of lessons from like the Bible and when you were at church and that that are important. Like see see that kind of idea like do unto others that you want done to yourself like that. It's important. Like see see if you wouldn't enjoy being treated like that, don't treat someone else like that. I always trying to look at the positives and I think like see for any adversion you have with like especially when it comes to race like if it, if it give you any skill it's like it's reading people. People say it about me all the time, but like people usually have 30 seconds and I've made up my decision on what kind of person they are and that's, I'll never change that decision. I think that's part of its race, right? Because when, when you're younger, I don't know, sometimes you just, you can you can feel it or you can see the way that someone's looking at you that they think less of you. They just, you can sense their hatred for you as a being. And and, I, and I'm sure, I'm sure like women have to live through that a lot when they, there's a lot of men that maybe make you uncomfortable and you can't explain what it is, but it's really that they don't value you the same or they're degrading you or they think of you as less because of like like misogyny you know what I mean so I'm sure a lot of women have that empathy as well and like I say I never believe in playing the victim and I'd never play a race card but sometimes you just think like I feel like that was a racial decision I feel like or, or you, you see the way someone says something you think you just don't really have any respect for me as a, a, a human I, ha- I had such a debate with my pal about it because we were at a party and their friend said what's up my n-word to someone and I, and I was saying like that, you shouldn't say that. And I never actually called them racist for it, but I was saying like, you shouldn't say that. And we had to chat about it. And he was saying like, why not? And and I was saying like, do, do you know, the, the real reason I think you're racist isn't because you've said it, but because when I've said to you that I, I feel uncomfortable, you don't respect me enough as a human being to just not say it. So like, that's what makes me think that you think less of me. Not not the word you said, but the actions. And I, I'm not I'm not policing your words. I'm just saying to you as a human being, like I... I I, I do believe that like in a lot of times like offence is taken not given but like a lot of things are fair play to joke about but if someone ever said to you like ah, actually that joke doesn't sit well with me and they give you a reason if if you can't respect that like why why not exactly I, I find I find it mental that we're in a, a day and age where we even still have to have that debate and like w- when that word comes up people say like oh man like the why like you know it was in a song or whatever I'm like but it nobody wants to hear that. There's nobody in this day and age that doesn't know the connotations of that word, surely. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So why why are we having the debate? It's mental. Yeah. I see it all the time, man. People share things and they say like, "Oh man, it's the PC police. Like, why are you offended?" And I'm like, "Man, like, how, how do you even start explaining the intricacies of race through one tweet?" <laughs> and I think that's what I love about retro and the, the video. Like, we tried to touch on very subtly some of those like things that people say that can seem like an off comment but you know what I mean there's a bit in the video and he's holding up signs and he's like make that money and be more urban and urban's such a phrase that's used to like mm. essentially say be blacker or it's like it's like a really PC way of saying the n-word because it's like mm. we think of you as urban it's like we're branding blackness it's like there's subtleties that come with race and and again the same thing for I believe women and misogyny like the subtleties that come and you, you look at it and you go like okay they've dressed us up really well but that is what it is yeah. yeah it makes me it makes me sad that that's a thing and 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 for me like sexism is unfathomable because I grew up with such strong women in my life like you I, I was never I was never had anything but respect because of the way the, the women in my life were I remember when my mum had just become a minister and she was somewhere with her minister attire on and uh, a, 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 a member of the LGBT community kind of like accosted her and said, oh, I bet you don't think I should be allowed to be gay because of your beliefs. 
And she was like, I, I absolutely think you should be able to love whoever you love. Like, I don't believe that. And they're like, ah, whatever. And then, and then she started thinking, like, hold on a wee minute. Like, you're saying you don't believe I should believe in this. Like, I, I, I grew up as a black woman in the 60s. Like, I'll, I'll tell you some stories about like what it's like okay. to be. Uh, I, but but the biggest thing she was trying to say was like we we're not on, we're not like on a, a different team like we're we're all in this together. All, well, that's all the thing of... people just make assumptions as well. You know they saw mm-hmm. what she was wearing and just decided that's what she thought. Yeah, and and for me it's like see all these causes like feminism and for race and for LGBT like we all are fighting for equality. So that's the same fight. Like we, we should all be supporting each other through our struggles. And the same thing it comes to me that like education is everything. And, you know, a lot of times the people who get attacked for not being up to date and it's like, well, hold on, like just, and, and this is where I, I feel like my upbringing has been so amazing because like I grew up in a, a working class town in the west of Scotland as someone that's mixed race. Mm-hmm. But all my friends were like white and working class. And then it's like, well, hold on a minute because there are struggles and there's still classism and they're in many ways often the target of the blame for a lot of things but they're getting the same treatment they're they're put out to take the blame well the same people who are benefiting from your oppression and their oppression and my oppression and her oppression and his oppression are getting away scot-free it's like a scapegoat yeah i'm a big believer that like someone shouldn't just be cancelled on twitter or arrested for saying race like the first option they should have is education So if, if you're a racist, you should be like, well, you're going to have to attend this like sensitivity class. Or, we're going to educate. We're going to educate. You've got to go to the National Slavery Museum in Liverpool and understand just what that meant. If you're a Holocaust denier, you have to go to Auschwitz and you have to understand just how severe that was. We're going to appeal to the human in you. Totally, because because people people can have a, a, a lack of education or understanding or the, their thoughts have been warped by something else. Right, so you think of the upbringing you had and all the, the positive, important messages you were given. Mm-hmm. Some people haven't had that. Totally. So then in some way, shape or form, you're like, how can we expect them to, to understand? Absolutely. If they've had such a close view of the world, have they been told lies essentially but, but then if if you're then educated and you understand why what you said is wrong but you then still choose to say it well then then you should be held accountable for it because you now understand what yeah. was said like we just skip that part and we go straight to like this there's like so much like we've reached a weird point in on maybe not, maybe not real life world but certainly on the internet where it's like saying something really offensive is rightfully called out by some but then just an equal amount of people seem to agree and defend it. And there's no middle ground. Mm. It's just like, it's like black and white. The world's become like black or white, right or wrong. And we've forgotten that there's a grey area. Yeah, and you, like you were saying, ask the questions. Like, why do you think that? Why did you say that? Why did I feel like that when you said that? You know, just ask the questions. I think that's like what resonates with me with you is that you're just someone who's inquisitive, that, you know, your intentions are good, <laughs> that you've found something that you love in the world that you're just, putting all your efforts in, keeping your head down, doing your thing, trying to be a good person. And if you don't know something, you just ask. And if you don't like something, you say you don't like it. And then we have a conversation about it. And I think there's so much to take away from what you've said in this conversation. But it's generally like, is like good advice for people. Yeah, I hope so. I always, I always say to people like, there's this long held thing that like knowledge is power. But if you don't understand the knowledge, it's useless. So like people say a lot of things as fact but they can't really substantiate the fact and this is the thing i found myself doing most now when people are saying things on facebook or talking utter nonsense i just say well what's your source like what what is the proof of what you're saying 
and then they're like, "Whoa, oh, I just read it somewhere." I'm like, "Well, that's not. I'm sorry, but that's not a fact. The fact that you heard it somewhere is not a fact." So we can just disregard that as an argument now, and we'll wait till you have some sort of proof of what you're saying. But right now, people will say, "We'll say we don't believe the experts, but some guy who's dressed as a doctor on YouTube told me otherwise, and I believe him." I know, you don't even bizarre. know that they're a doctor. It's totally bizarre. It's like what? Uh, it's like what is going on? I remember, I remember once being told by someone like our radio station was saying like they wanted to playlist a song of ours because they liked it, but we didn't have enough followers. And I was like, but by that logic, Katie Hopkins could just release a single and you'd playlist it because she's got enough followers. And that would not like, be a good idea. But what, do you know what I mean? Like, what, yeah, that would not be a, she's an excellent example. <laughs> but, but do you know what I mean? That's, that's the sad way in which the world works now, where it's like, well, the more followers you have, the more worth your words have. That's not right. Yeah, like it's like doing this podcast. Like, you know, it's lovely that people are following it and listening to it. Essentially, I want people to listen. But actually, the best bit for me is the conversation. If, it, if I just have yeah. this conversation and nobody listens to it, I've still really enjoyed it. It's not about, oh, I'm going to yeah, oh, yeah. And this is, this is absolutely the essence of why I'm doing this. Um, you know, it's lovely that other people, the fact that they listen to it, it's not that they've listened to it, it's that they've taken something from it, they've enjoyed it. That's where the joy comes from when people mm-hmm. listen to it. You know, when they've said, like, thanks very much, I really enjoyed that. Or I went and listened to, to Brown Bear because I listened to your podcast. I'm like, great. Because if I can mm-hmm. help, somebody else steer them towards something good like totally. great music when people are able to sit and not chat with me but they've heard you chat with me and they get an insight to me and then they listen to the music they, they maybe listen to it with more of an insight to like maybe what i was thinking about or what i'm talking about and whereas if you just heard it in a playlist you don't have any background or insight to a song you, you don't care about it as much and i like to come and sit and chat and there's a human being behind the artist you know and behind the song and again when we had management and they try and pitch you to bigger radios and discourage you from doing like university or like community radios but i just love doing the community radio thing because i always felt like they gave you the time to sit and talk whereas like to the time to to research you or, or at least ask or or were honest enough to say like i've, I've never heard the band so tell me about it whereas people on the radio say like they, you come in and they, they kid on they know all about the band and then they say something ridiculous that's not even your band you're like what and, and i feel like people who listen to podcasts like your podcast or like listen to community radios like they they've taken a, a choice to support something and to want to hear other things and for a lot of major radio it's just background noise so that people aren't invested in major radio whereas if you listen to something you're invested you want to hear what that they're bringing but whether you're going to like it a lot of people might listen to this and i won't be for them or they'll, they'll maybe enjoy this but they won't enjoy the music and that's that is what it is but they'll take the time to find that out when you hear something in radio too you just think like it'll come back on and whatever in a big radio, they rush in, they ask you some generic question about what sandwich you'd be if you could be a sandwich and then tell you to fuck off, you know what I mean? It's like, what have we gained here? And it... I feel this is a, a really good segue into what I'm about to ask you next. Yeah, yeah, it's okay, here we go. <laughs> no, it's just what you said, that is like, right, so. <laughs> but I do, I do enjoy a frivolous question. Yes, I have listened to your music, but I've never been to a gig. Now I'll go to a gig because I've been introduced to your music and I enjoy it and we've had this conversation so now totally. I feel like we've got a connection. So I'm not professing to be an expert in, in brown bear, but now I'm like, you know, now I'm invested because yeah. I had And the then maybe one day you can choreograph our video. Oh, now we're talking. This now we're it. talking. It's the business, is it? <laughs> <laughs> so here comes the frivolous questions about um, okay. sandwiches and that, right? But I do actually do this, right? This is called the thingamabobs. Right. I hope it's like quick fire. Well, it can be. I mean, it depends on how <laughs> answer them. Do you know what I mean? So, my first question I'm ready. is <laughs> most treasured possession and why? Uh gosh. Uh, I think I think um 
I, I certainly I certainly have records that I, I I'm really I treasure. Like I've got like a few I've got a Ray Charles record, like it's like an original from like sixty seven or something. Wow. And I've got an original run uh, thriller. Uh, so some of my records are really treasure because you know music is my thing. Uh-huh. And then uh, up in my wall, I've got uh, just behind me, I've got my first record in a frame because it was the first time I had myself on vinyl, and that's mm-hmm. like to me is a massive deal because it's vinyl, right? And that's my thing. And beside that, I've got the poster from the sold out touch show, and it's signed by the band and Luke Lavolt and Billy Mitchell and Denny Smith, who were on the bill as well. And I always treasure that because it was like the first proper fully sold out headline show for us in, in Glasgow. Love it. Love it. That was a great answer. Uh, Favourite smell? Favourite smell? Um, wow. Uh, maybe a new book. Ooh, good one. It's a good smell, in it? I'm not even that big a reader, but I love when you smell a, a new book. Makes me think of like, the book club when it came to primary school. Yeah, totally. And it was usually in our primary school. It was like usually around parents' night. So, like, if you were getting like a good report, you would get a book from the book club. Yeah, uh, I should read more. It's terrible that I don't. Right, somebody I, I can't take credit for this because actually somebody asked me this the other day there on Instagram. I was like, that's an excellent question. Whose okay. voice would narrate your life? Wow, uh, man. That's an amazing question, that. <laughs> well, they only gave me two choices, so I just had to pick one, but I'm giving you all the choice. <laughs> um, I think it, it would be between Patrick Stewart for The Voice. Oh, yes. And, uh, man, I guess, like, if I could get, like, Stevie Wonder to sit and talk about me, that would just, well, if he, if he would even bother to talk about me, that would just blow my brain. He is the man, to be fair. Yes. Good choices. Um, and the last one that I ask everybody in the podcast is, what is your favourite Scottish word or phrase? <sighs> oh. My my favourite phrase, I don't know if this is exclusively Scottish, but I feel like it's a very Scottish thing, is what's for you won't go by you. That is my mantra. Yeah, I think that's... That is what I say all the time. I think that's the best one, isn't it? Like, what's for you won't go by you. Yeah. My gran was the queen of phrases. She would always have a phrase for something. She'd be like, oh, oh really? what's for you won't go by you. Or, you know, someone was driving fast, she used to say, listen, I'd rather be 30 minutes late in this life than 30 seconds early in the next. So just slow down. <gasps> that's one. But do you know what one of my favourite Scottish words is like? Cause not funny wise, but like just like actually I think it should be used. But you know, in Dundee they don't say everyone; they say like Abde. Abde. <laughs> like I think everyone should use. That. I think it's such a great word, like Abde. Well, I've not had that one yet in the podcast, so that's a first. What do you call your kitchen surface? The worktop. Do you not call it a bunker? Oh, now you say that. Um, I don't know if I would say bunker. Would I say bunker? I always call it the bunker, but loads of people don't. But then there's <laughs> loads of things you start saying elsewhere and you didn't know we're a Scottish, a Scottish exclusive. Like, you know what you say? We call it diluting juice. Uh-huh. And it's not. It's squash. I was down south squash, and someone was like, yeah. what is diluting juice? And I was like, what? The stuff you used to dilute your, ju- your water, mate, <laughs> that turns it into juice. <laughs> I, I love, one of my favourite things people say is council juice when they're talking about water. Yeah. Yeah, council juice. <laughs> like, what, what, what would you call um, a rolling square sausage? I think I would just call it a rolling square sausage. Like, see, see where I, when, uh, we used to, where I was growing up, they used to call it a slice. Like, or like, see if you're having like a rolling square sausage with tomato sauce, you just go into the shop, the, the baking bite, and you just go slicing tomato, please. Oh, really? Yeah. And they would know it was like a rolling square sausage with tomato sauce. Slicing tomato. Gosh. I went veggie at the end of last year, so it's like, mm. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. Like, I, it's, I've, I really am. It's like, I'm cooking a lot more and it's a lot more taste than that, but I do miss a rolling mm. sausage. That's the one thing. 
square sausage, do you know what I mean? Like that's so weird as well, because our, our drummer's from Huddersfield, Sam, and he, he uh, originally but he lives he lives up here and he he just never heard of a square sausage until he got up here. They don't have it down south. That's that's mental. Well, the thing, these are the things that people ask for when they go and move abroad and whatnot and people are coming to visit them and mm-hmm. it's like square sausage, uh, and roux and my aunties like when we used to go and visit them like my dad's side and um, they would like give you a glass of ruby like we didn't get ginger like we didn't get that kind of juice it was diluting juice we got in our house but you we went to your auntie minnie's and she a glass of brew but it was always like in a crystal glass <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I love that thing like when we were growing up like he would go over to your friend's house and they would have like coca-cola like the brand and you'd know it was on a deal but like, ah, see you later. I'm going home. To tell my mum because we've we've had roller cola for a month now, <laughs> and and you'd run home and be like, Mandy, get yourself to Morrison's because there is a deal on the cola, on the real deal cola. <laughs> That's so funny. It's so funny that you call your mum Mandy, and like I totally get when you explain that call your mum Mandy, and it's for the utmost respect. If, if I said mum, my mum would either say, "What do you want?" Or what's happened? Like she would assume something bad had happened, or I wanted I'd done something bad. My mum's such a funny character because like everyone will always tell you like she's the nicest, most caring individual, the most time in the world. But prior, not not since lockdown because she's missing me. But prior to lockdown, if I phone my mum, she'd be like, "What do you want?" And I'd be like, "This," and she'd be like, "Okay, this is it." You know what I mean? Like two like, two minutes would be a long phone call. She's like, "What? What exactly have you phoned me for?" I'm like, "Oh, sorry, mum. I just <laughs> I was just checking in." You, you know, the best thing ever about my mum is like. Not that she's not supportive, because she's always been like uh, an advocate that um, you know if you get one life and you should try and do what you want and love your best one. But she obviously worries for me. And she's like, you know, like, I don't know if music's sustainable. Maybe you need to think about other things. And and she never really took the band as like a serious prospect. Not even with the album being. It wasn't like the album came out. And she thought, well, this is it. But they they did that um, Scotland rocks or what was it called? Rip it up or whatever it was. And it was the museum. National Museum and they were doing all the different things and they had folk come in and talk and pick lists and one of the guys in the Proclaimers like my mum loves the Proclaimers and one of the guys right. in the Proclaimers picked his top 10 songs from Scotland and he, he picked a brown bear song and that was the point where my mum was like well this is official, if somebody that's involved with the Proclaimers has said it then we're good to go, I was like not, not any of my other accolades mum, any, any award or any, any shows or or the fact that we have a record out or we've been on like the radio, like because someone involved <laughs> with the proclaimer said they quite liked one of my songs. Well, to be fair, they do write good songs. Like I choreographed Sunshine and Leaf, it was one of the best musicals I've ever done. Sunshine and Leaf is to me one of the greatest songs I've ever written. I, I, I genuinely believe that like while I'm worth my room on this earth, I'll be with you is one of the greatest lyrics ever. Musicals are the best, aren't they? Like I just man I love them. My mum used to uh, dance like she always was in like the chorus or whatever and she'd always we'd always go and see musicals that from a young age i was going to see like amateur productions mm. obviously like but i love them and, and uh the greatest thing i ever 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 lived through in a theater was going to see uh a one night of whitney it was in the the kings uh-huh. in glasgow and the the girl kind of broke character and she was like you know like tonight's actually the anniversary of whitney's death of like however many years it'd been four mm. years say and it, and then this woman just shouted, shouted, R.I.P. mate, R.I.P. There's always one. <laughs> this is the most Glaswegian thing I've ever lived through. That's why I can't go. Like, I went to see Dirty Dancing the musical. No. Nobody puts baby in the corner. I'm like, be quiet. I want to escape. <laughs> like, I was just so aware that I was in Glasgow. It was all these hen parties. And, no. 
<laughs> the last few I saw were um, uh, the the Motown musical. I went to see it twice. Oh, amazing! So good. I, I, I'm my whole life, and to this day, I'm Motown after. I love. It. I think it's the greatest collection of music on earth, and. I honestly just cried the first time. I was so I was it was so overwhelmed with like happiness that it'd been made into a musical and a story. I wasn't even sad. I was like tears of joy. I was just sitting there crying, like, oh my god, this is the best thing that ever happened. This has been a total joy. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. It was class chatting to you. Like, oh, lovely chat. It's great chat. Enjoyed it. And, um, yeah, and hopefully we get a catch up for like a pint or whatever, like when this is done. Hundred percent. Although I'll be on the I'll be on the soda water and lime. I'm a teetotaler. Me. Oh, me too. Nah, I, I, I was going to say I'll be on the brew. I, I've I've been teetotaler. Teetotal not had a drink for eight years. I think it's the best way to be. Like I, I don't feel like I, I ever needed it to be myself, so I just don't don't touch it. Yeah, still got on the dance floor without it. <laughs> there you go. I, I I would, but it's too embarrassing for everyone else. <laughs> yeah, now you've said it. Your your mum must have seen something in you, so I feel like you you might need to break out some moves in this next uh, music video that you do. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe if you maybe if I spend some time being choreographed, like we'll we'll see. But I, I'll take on the challenge. No problem. <laughs> there we go. It's done. I'll, I'll phone phone Tom and Hannah today and tell them it's, okay. it's all go. <laughs> yes. No, thank you so much. This has been a I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Braw and the Brave, a podcast about people and their passions. Join us next time for more insight and inspiration from my wonderful guests. Bye for now.